jury's out. I'd still be 50-50 either way today. Season two of Striped is officially in the books. And as you wait ever so patiently for season three and whatever other surprises might come your way, we have a few bonus episodes in the meantime to tide you over. This time around, you'll hear a few remembrances from Ben Blackwell about the White Stripes West Coast tour that didn't make it into the season. Some of which are uh, funny little stories. Others are kind of instructive to the history of the band, but we just couldn't fit them in. So enjoy this bonus episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. Fargo slash Moorhead. So, and this this has been the source of many polite disagreements between Jack and I over the past 20 years, which was, um, it first came up in 2007 when the White Stripes were planning, they're trying to plan to play every state in every, every state in the U.S. that they hadn't already played. And so they're like, okay, what, they call me up, Blackwell, what states haven't we played? And I give them this, blah, 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 blah. North Dakota. Like, no, 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 we played North Dakota. I was like, I'm sorry, you played Moorhead, Minnesota, which is a block away from Fargo, North Dakota. And Jack's like, oh, no, what? It's the, no, it's, I was like, hey, man, if you want to half-ass this and play 49 of the states, you're more than welcome to. I'm just giving you the information as I know it to be. And so, the, you know, the second half of that White Stripes tour ended up being canceled and didn't, didn't end up playing. So then years later, I think it's 2014, Jack is like, all right, I'm finally going to hit the states that I haven't hit before, which are like Idaho, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, maybe. Um, and so they're trying to figure, okay, what states haven't I played? I was like, North Dakota. He's like, are you really? I said, yes, I'm really. You have not played North Dakota. You don't, just because time has passed, does not change the geography between Moorhead and Fargo. <laughs> I have delightful memories of Moorhead, Minnesota. There's a record store. Meg found a copy of uh, This Is Howlin' Wolf's new album that Jack had been looking for for a long time, and Meg found it. And I remember, like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, Meg found it, man. She fucking, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and the club was just called uh, Ralph's Bar, Ralph's Corner Bar. And the band played, and it's just like a that gig. We put out a DVD of it in a vault package years ago. Um, I had a camera with us on that trip and it's, it might as well be like your basement rec room. Like it's not that big. Um, the stage is maybe six inches high and it's, you know, maybe 12 by 12 if we're being, if we're being generous and it's in like a window, like a storefront window and the bar restaurant is kind of next door. Played some pinball. Um, and as I recall it, I'm kind of up close while the band's playing. They start, I'm holding the camera and I keep, keep looking back like through the show. And by the end of the gig, it's like, you know, maybe there was like 10 people watching when they started. And by the end of the gig, it's like 60, 70 people in the room, like, like Pied Piper style, like people were, were drawn in. 
I thought that was really cool. And we stayed with this guy, Zespi. I think the following year when we came through, Zespi came back and said hi, but in the 20 years, I've not seen nor heard from Zespi, but it's so clear in my head. If I have a favorite memory from that tour is, you know, money's tight. Like even though they're getting, they got a booking agent, they're getting, it, uh, they're getting guarantees and all that stuff. It's, it's you know, you got to buy food, you got to pay for gas and, and you're just kind of getting to the next town. So we stayed at Zespi. Zespi has a studio in Fargo or Moorhead. Seemed like it was a little bit outside of, you know, whatever the city center is. It felt a little more isolated. And uh, apparently, um, Zespi had done recordings, multiple recordings with Wesley Willis at his studio, which I'm a Wesley Willis fan, was a Wesley Phyllis, Willis fan then. So the the orientation of Zespi's space is that there's like a there's like a single bed the guest bed guest room whatever so meg takes that and then there's like a fold out couch that folds into whatever that's full i i doubt it's maybe it's queen size nothing bigger than that and jack and i take that (laughs) and uh zespi says to us yeah, the last guy to sleep there was Wesley Willis. <laughs> and Jack and I, like a bunch of fucking seven-year-olds at a sleepover, just could not stop joking around, being just silly, dumb, goofy jokes. And Zespi had told us this thing, you know, Wesley Willis had, uh, he was, uh, he was gifted. He was special. And, uh, he had to, he was on medication to, to deal with, you know, he'd hear voices and Zespi would say like the certain time every day when you're recording Wesley, like 5 PM comes around and if he hasn't taken his pills, like you can tell. And he just, the clearest line burned into this, the DNA of my brain is just Zespi. This is me imitating Wesley Willis's voice. And so Zespi had told me this is what Wesley would say. Zespi, the voices in my head are being jerks. <laughs> and I think that like how, what a simplified way of, of, of the voices in my head are being jerks. It's like, I have so much respect for that phrase. And I probably think about it once a month. So Jack White and Wesley Willis, that's probably the only bed uh, in the world that both of them have slept on. From Missoula to Seattle. So they play at the Sit and Spin in Seattle. And they, I remember they started rehearsing that night. They were rehearsing one more cup of coffee because they wanted to make sure they could play it by the time they got to LA. Because Long Gone John, who had put out the records, wanted to hear it and they hadn't played it in a while. So I remember them doing one more cup of coffee at uh, Soundcheck. And there was a band, one of the opening bands is this band called The Vultures. And now The Vultures had one of the guys, this guy named Heath, Heath Heemsbergen, solid dude, 
Um, he played previously in a band called The Fells, and The Fells recorded a seven inch in Jack's living room a year or two prior that came out on Italy records. I think at the time they, that he lived in Tucson and then had moved to Seattle and had this new band, the Vultures. So they were on the bill. They're good, solid, you know, kind of 77 punk style band. But what I really loved was one of the other opening bands was this band called a frames was maybe like their fifth or sixth show. I remember hearing and just remember being gobsmacked, loving this band. And I wrote down in my tour diary, just like they had songs like where they just kind of, the song titles, they're just repeating this shit, sing songy manner, like Neutron Bomb, Neutron Bomb. Um, and the, that was, uh, that was one of the songs I wrote down. And the other one, I remember, just stuck out clear as day was Plastic Surgery, Plastic Surgery. Side note. Through Heath, I later get connected with these guys. I was like, I, I remember asking him over email. I was like, what happened to that band A-Frames? He's like, oh, I'll put you in touch with them. They're like cool guys and they're working on doing some recordings or whatever. So I email Min, the bass player. And uh, I said, yeah, I just, I remember like super clear these two songs that you did, one about plastic surgery and one about neutron bombs. And he was like, shit, man, those are the A-sides of our first two singles. So... Uh, you clearly have an ear. Let me uh, let me send you all of our recordings and tell me what else you think is good here. And uh, man, I tried for years to put out an A-Frames record, and for some reason, whatever, they just never. We just never connected. Um, but love those guys. They put out records on Sub Pop later, and everything they did was always really, really good. Their Black Forest album, amazing, one of my favorites. Um, so just happenstance, happened to see them. That was great. Spend a second day in Seattle. They do an in-store at, um, what is the record store? Fallout Records. And this is, I like this show because it is the last time the White Stripes use a set list. And I think the idea was they wanted to focus on songs that they hadn't played the night before. And it was just like, ah, let's just, let's just like write it out. Maybe we'll follow, maybe we'll actually play the set or maybe it's just like a list to go by. But from then on, they play Portland the next night. No set lists. So that's June of 2000 all the way through the rest of the career of the band. There's no set list. I think that is inherent in the intrigue of that band. I would look at any other band that is ultimately like consider it when you've got Anything more than a two-piece, you can't do anything on the fly. You can't do it on a whim. If you look at, you know, the Foo Fighters, like guys are using different guitars for different songs and you got to swap that out and you got different pedal settings or whatever, all that stuff. You kind of, not to mention like, hey, the lighting director likes really likes using this effect when you guys play this song. And so like, if you're just blah, 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 we can't, planet it's frustrating because rock and roll punk rock should 
inherently be unplanned. It should be off the cuff. But as revolutions turn into businesses, well, you got to plan ahead. You 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 know, got to put on a good show, all that stuff. And so to me, that's that it seemed predestined that the band would get there, that they would just stop using a set list. Um, so that's exciting for me. Um, there's good photos of that in store. I think we've got video of it too. I'm going to start sharing this shit. As it happens, that show he's talking about right there did end up on the vault package for the accompaniment to distill. So I'm not saying it's because of me that they decided to include it, but I'm going to say it's because of me. The, uh, so yeah, Portland, um, I remember at the show, one of the opening bands, someone threw a bottle and hit the fucking lead singer with a bottle in the face. And the guy came off off stage and he was bleeding from his face. And he came up to me and I was fucking scared because this was a big guy whose face was bleeding. And I don't think, I he's like, did you, I don't know if he asked me if I threw the bottle or if I saw who threw it. I was just like, I think I was just like, he went that away. Uh, my classic Hollywood voice. And then they do a gig in in Long Beach, a place called the Foothill. And this is one of my favorite White Stripe shows. I got to correct myself about the fucking set lists. This is the last show that the White Stripes ever have set lists because it seemed very Warholian to do. But Jack had this idea, or Meg had this idea, or they had it together, or whatever. But the idea was hatched that the set lists for the night should be written on their shirts. So Jack wrote the, the set list that he would read, he wrote on the front of Meg's white t shirt. So he read Sharpie on Meg's white t-shirt on the front of her shirt. The set list that Meg would use was written in red Sharpie on the back of Jack's t-shirt. And so, you you know, there's video of that. You can see like Jack and Meg like looking like Jack has to get close to Meg to see what's written on her shirt. And she's staring at his back to see what's written on his shirt. I have Jack's shirt. Long gone got Meg's shirt. That's one of the few things of like... I wish I fucking had. <laughs> I got Jack's shirt. It's all dirty. I got to fucking like, how do you clean it without making the the marker run or whatever? That's all we've got for this bonus episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Melissa Locker, Mark Charles, and Kojin Tashiro. Biggest thanks of all, though, goes to the White Stripes themselves, Jack and Meg White, because without them, none of this would be possible. Oh, and we've also put together companion playlists for seasons one and two of Striped, so you can hear a lot of the bands and songs mentioned in the show, including this bonus episode, and maybe, just maybe, discover your next big musical obsession. 
You can find those playlists on your preferred streaming platform or by perusing the Third Man social channels. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next time. As we're driving in, one of the side streets not too far from the uh, the entry, as it's called, um, we see this bright neon light, all shiny, illuminated sex world. And so we drive by, and Jack and I just look at each other, and I think he had the great line. He's like, you think Prince has ever been in sex world? I'm like, oh, hell yeah, Prince has been in sex world. Prince is synonymous with sex world.